0: Welcome back. If you remember, last time we concluded Chapter 1. So today, we delve into Chapter 2, where I will be reading all about my journey through love and dating. Enjoy! Memoirs, Chapter 2 love lust and the messy stuff the first time i thought i was in love it was because i had prayed specifically for a golly boyfriend to come and sweep me off my feet when he materialized in the form of a new person at my church and was not only my type but also pure i figured my prayers were answered that relationship was a testing ground for everything i claimed to be and everything i said i believed my works were tested by fire and they burned to the ground. The relationship that I claimed was from God was fueled by idolatry and teenage hormones. It was a roller coaster of passion that I voluntarily embarked upon. By the time we reached our destination, which was a breakup, we were tattered versions of our previous selves. My first relationship taught me how to live two lives. By all appearances, we were two good kids from decent homes having an innocent relationship. Our families knew each other. Our friends were friends. There should have been nothing to hide. But underneath the surface of innocent relationship, we were both fighting or succumbing to demons that others could not see. Along with the long awaited romance that had been fueled by years of reading romance novels, there was a void in my life that felt as if it could only be filled by the unconditional love and attention of a man, someone who thought I was special enough for a commitment. I did not realize that the void itself was a setup by the enemy. Any emptiness that refuses to be filled with God was a seat at the throne of my heart, especially made for an idol. I should have submitted my feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness to God. I should have sought wholeness from the throne of mercy and grace. But hindsight is 2020. Instead, I ran after broken sisters that would never satisfy. Much like Israel demanded a king, I wanted a boyfriend. As a teenager, I had convinced myself that I too wanted my parents' love story. High school sweethearts who dated for 10 years and married one another. I forgot to ask them about the level of prayer, maturity or sacrifice it took for two teenagers to eventually build up marriage as adults. I was not prepared for what I prayed for. The turmoil, anguish, and recklessness born out of that relationship set me on a path of destruction that almost took me out for good. I learned hypocrisy as a teenager who was living a secret life apart from anyone's counsel, advice, or guidance. And I continued down that road of living by my own best judgment for 10 years before God's mercy stepped in. Before our relationship ultimately ended, we had made promises and pledges that had no business in a teenage relationship like ours. When I was ready to move on from that relationship, I was even more reckless than before. I no longer wanted a husband to be. I just wanted a good time. I dated anyone who seemed like they would be fun. I liked boundaries and violated every code of conduct that should have guided my behavior. No one could talk me out of my line of action, no matter how inappropriate. Everyone needed to mind their business. I was fine. Everything was fine. I was young and single. I could do whatever I wanted. I was not living like the good church girl I had pretended to be for so long. Although there were still lines in the Living Wild and Free catalog, that I refused to cross. I did not mind having people see me as a bad girl. The persona was intriguing. For someone who had been under lock and key in my parents' house for the first 17 years of my life, my first real taste of freedom was addictive. I never subjected my relationship to the scrutiny of anyone who could hold me accountable. There was no oversight, no discipleship or anything of that sort. I had awoken in love in my own time and I was determined to fulfill whatever my passions dictated. Being led by the whirlwinds of my emotions was all I knew from the age of 17 until 26. I called it being a hopeless romantic. I did not realize that I was in bondage to my lusts. You are well aware of my first introduction to mature content via inappropriate and highly sexualized conversations with other children. In my neighborhood back in Nigeria. My first experience with another person's lust was around my 11th birthday. My teenage neighbor forced himself on me. Then and there my struggle with lust was born and the war raged on for another 16 years. When I was 15 years old the war against my soul received new ammunition, pornography my brother and i were hosting a co-ed sleepover at our house boys in his room and girls in mine one of my friends had an x-rated video that was to be the highlight of our girls night in the images were seared in my mind as i watched in open mouth amazement disgusted but fascinated by what i was watching and feeling portals were hoping my mindset was changed and i was different i was always looking to replicate the feelings that the video gave me and that endless search gave way to another relationship solely founded on how closely we could push each other towards sin without completing the deed the dynamics between us over dependence jealousy and lack of boundaries were wholly toxic I thought it was love I had an insatiable appetite for love yet I also had a deeply ingrained fear of not being good enough for romance. Any young man who was handsome, educated, caring, and amazingly enough interested in me was too good for me. My past was too messy. Nobody will want someone with my type of baggage. I faked my wholeness for a long time because it was easier than unpacking the truth of the abuse and dysfunction that was not part of my story. Most of the churched men in my age group respected a woman who was walking in purity, although some would still push you towards compromise. It made sense for a woman who would never cross that particular bridge to wait until marriage to explore intimacy. Not so much if I told them I was a survivor of abuse or a woman struggling severely to honor her vow to the Lord. By the time I reached my mid-twenties, I had survived three non-consensual encounters at the hands of a neighbor a classmate, and an ex-boyfriend. I felt used. I existed in the world with a broken view of myself. The best way I have heard it described is that I was looking at my reflection through a broken mirror. Source, the Love Hour podcast with Melissa and Kevin Fredericks. I was distorted, shattered, and fragmented, a freak of nature. I was so wholly convinced that no one on this earth had my kind of past, that I never bothered sharing my pain with others. I just perfected my cover. I had the perfect mask. If people wanted the good girl who sang in church and participated in youth ministry, I could play her. If they preferred the carefree party girl who could flirt or fight with the same ease and gusto, I could conjure her up as well. Romantic relationships. Taught me how to perfect my hypocrisy. In between each assault was a different committed relationship that did not last. I was an emotional wreck. Rather than seeking healing, deliverance, and wholeness in Christ, I kept trying to heal myself or make amends for my past misdeeds by being, quote, a good girl. Every failed relationship was another reminder that I was a failure at relationships. A loving, committed, functional romance did not exist for women like me. By my own summation, if I were good enough, these relationships would have worked out better. I must have been too fundamentally flawed to be part of a whole and functional romantic relationship. I did not realize I was dating according to my self-esteem. Once again, the Love Hour podcast, Melissa Fredericks, a.k.a. Mrs. Kev on Stage. I have fed myself the same lie for over two decades. I am broken. I am flawed. I am damaged. That view of myself meant that I only felt worthy of men who were also living out their dysfunction. A quote, good man would not be attracted to a woman like me. So I took what I could get. For a then-described hopeless romantic, the thought of never having a loving relationship that could stand the test of time, drove me to a level of depression and hopelessness that I prayed to never revisit. Long before my sense of self was broken, I had a standard for the kind of man I wanted to share my life with. I knew I wanted someone godly, ambitious, good-looking, and romantic. By the time I was 11, I was already convinced that that kind of guy that I wanted would never want me in return. I was no longer good enough. My inner thoughts reminded me for 16 years that I was damaged goods. I was not whole. I was not good. I was not worthy. Any appearance of confidence I had before the age of 26 was a facade. I would go years, just pretending to be the woman I thought everyone wanted, convincing myself that if I could just play this role long and hard enough, I would eventually become the woman I wanted everyone to see confident, beautiful, and destined for great things. No matter how hard I pretended, though, my shadow self, the darkest parts of my personalities, always reared her head. From The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Pete Cesaro. I will play the part of a good and obedient daughter for weeks at home, only to sneak out for a drunken night of partying, and not return home until dawn. When my parents raged against my careless and troubling antics, I would remind myself that I was not worthy of their love either. They deserved a daughter who had not been repeatedly assaulted, who was not so easily triggered by a man's touch. They deserved a daughter who did not need alcohol to feel free when she was out with friends. They deserved a whole daughter. But since they did not have one, they only had me and my broken pieces. There was no use pretending to be perfect. I had to let them know somehow how fundamentally broken I was by, quote, acting out, even if I could not confess to who or what had broken me in the first place. So, I would have months of good behavior at home, only to throw it all away for a night out with friends. My wild swings in behavior drove my parents crazy. They knew who they raised as a daughter, and at my wildest, I was not being the woman they expected me to be. I jeopardized and at times destroyed the trust between my parents and I with my insatiable appetite for the fast life. I wanted to be good. I really did. But there was just no point. I had seen too much. There was no going back. I couldn't erase people's memories of me, the wild and crazy girl. There was no way to even convince anyone that I was not, quote, fast or loose. My reputation preceded me. So I just gave in to the pseudo-freedom of being the party girl. Even on church trips and conventions, I was squarely in the camp of the girls you would whisper about. It did not matter what the occasion happened to be. If people would not accept me as the good girl, I was happy to play the part of the wild child. I kept a measure of decorum around my parents' friends. But when I was with my peers, I would let my hair down. Anything goes. It has taken years of self reflection to realize that my wild ways were Christ for someone, anyone, to see me. I never felt seen. I never felt known. The only people I felt knew me best were my female cousins. We talked about everything. But even with them, I never shared the fact of my abuse or the depths of my struggles with identity and self-worth. There were things that I believed that even they would have rejected about me. So I didn't bother to divulge. If even my closest friends did not know the truth about me, then I was truly alone in the world. There was nobody on earth who knew the real me. Feeling unseen will drive you to do some outrageous things for attention. At my most dysfunctional, I was courting relationships with men who barely cared for my personhood and instigating fights and altercations with women I had known all my life. Women who should have been allies were a threat. If the only way for me to be seen was to grab and hold the attention of a man, then any woman who had the audacity to be prettier, funnier, or more outgoing was a threat. The man was the prize, so every woman was competition. I was my least favorite version of myself in those times, even when I felt justified in the moment. That girl did have an attitude with me. She was rolling her eyes in my direction. She did think she was cuter than me. There was no offense too petty to be ignored. All had to be addressed. All eyes had to be on me. Everyone needed to know that I was not the one to be disrespected or ignored My need to be seen was so visceral that the worst thing anyone could do was act as if I did not exist The silent treatment from loved ones Killed me in ways that are hard to describe My most traumatic experience from this time in my life was when a boyfriend of three months ended our relationship by no longer speaking to me. He rejected my calls, did not acknowledge my existence, and attended the same parties without so much as a glance in my direction. Revisiting my written accounts of that time period, you would have thought he ripped my heart out of my chest. We had only been together for a few months, but since I had no boundaries, we had already promised each other heaven and earth, and I was looking forward to forever with him. To go from the height of romance to the heartbreak of being ghosted was shocking. Like falling into an icy lake after a hot summer day. Similarly, when two of my best friends stopped talking to me at the same time, during the same summer, I thought I was going to die. The heartbreak was so thorough, I cannot adequately quantify it. Being ignored was a fate worse than death to me. My sense of inadequacy was unwittingly aided by my attendance at church. In my years as a churchgoer, I embraced the narrative given to me by the purity culture. Purity meant virginity. If you were not a virgin, you were not pure. It was the only framework I had for my sexuality. When I was robbed of my innocence as a child, I concluded that I would never be pure. I did not realize that the narrative I had been fed was incomplete. I did not know that the Bible made provision for women with convoluted sexual histories to come to Christ and be made whole as well. No one had ever preached to me that it was possible to lose your virginity and still find acceptance in Christ, and they did not tell me that being assaulted was not the fault of the victim. Most of the shame I carried about my history was because I had allowed myself to be assaulted. It did not matter how I lost my innocence. It only mattered that I no longer had it. I never heard about God's ability to redeem something as life-altering, as a broken view of sex and sexuality. I genuinely believed that anyone who lost their virginity before marriage evoked the wrath of God for the rest of their life. Yes, God may forgive them if they repent and never make the same mistakes again. But he still wouldn't bless them to the same extent as he blessed those who were virgins on their wedding nights. It was only fair, after all. They broke the rule. The big one. I wish someone, anyone, would have taught me the truth of the Bible and God's ability to redeem even what the enemy meant for evil. Even a quick lesson would have saved me years of turmoil. After my fresh encounter with the Lord at the age of 26, I began what I now believe to be my true conversion to the Christian faith. I have dissected and examined my life and spiritual state before that moment at the foot of the cross and at best I was a committed churchgoer without a genuine relationship with Christ. At worst I was a believer who has so fully backslidden into sin that there was no discernible difference between my life and and the life of one who had never encountered Christ to begin with. This new walk with Christ has been marked by extravagant freedom from darkness. The Lord did not only save my soul, He healed my understanding and mismanagement of past romances. I began to know true love in Christ, and that knowledge made it easy for me to know that it was possible to live in love with another human being And experience joy and commitment for a lifetime. As a single woman, the healing I experienced was nothing short of a miracle. It did not happen overnight by any means, but the more I submitted my view of myself to Christ and the written Word of God, the more the Holy Spirit would remind me who I was created to be. I finally started seeing myself through the eyes of grace. I was no longer the sum of my failures or hurts or even abuse. Christ and his victory over death gave me a growing confidence that he could conquer the darkness that had plagued my life until then. Faith in Christ gave me the confidence to live out my own version of beauty. I was no longer apologetic about my past in the sense that I stopped giving people permission to reject me based on circumstances that were already forgiven and redeemed. I began to reject the narrative that purity and virginity were the same thing. I knew the work that God was doing in my heart. My desires were changing, and I had a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness. No one could convince me that I was not pure before the Lord because of something that had happened to me. I saw God's hand in my life. I heard his spirit speaking to mine. I felt his love and acceptance as I grew in my faith. Virgin or not, I was accepted by God and set apart for his use. All of who I was as a woman was enough to be used for God's glory. The world had never given me permission to own my own sexuality. It was not okay for me to be a woman who would play fast and loose with her decisions but now wanted to do something different. I was only allowed to be what my past mistakes dictated, I continue to be. One of my Facebook friends had this to say, you know you are getting old when all the girls who were promiscuous in high school are now posting Bible verses on Facebook. She used a different word than promiscuous, but for the sake of purity, I won't use that word. Although the quote did not speak for me, as I had no social life in high school, the bottom line was clear. I was the party girl. I would always be the party girl. I had to stay where I had been pigeonholed or risk ridicule. I thank God for freeing me from that mental stronghold, the stronghold that demanded that I remain who I have always been. I fully embraced the truth that God has given me all that pertains to life and godliness and I did not look back. I also had the opportunity to study functional and godly relationships up close. Having friends who were in thriving relationships leading to marriage showed me what was possible. Prior to marriage I had never been in a relationship where my trauma was not informing my decision making. Every partner I picked before my husband was an attempt to alleviate some insecurity in an area that had not been healed seeing my friends settle down in relationships where mutual joy respect and honor were front and center gave me reason to hope for the same and to believe that it was possible for me i learned the value of purity by seeing the fruit it bore in marriage apart from the obvious damage that sexual sin can do to a marriage. I learned that purity frees a husband and a wife to do whatever God will have them to do in their marriage. Purity puts them in position to build because their foundation is already secure. Purity for me became less about just abstinence, but rather living a life that is continually consecrated. I desired a life that prepared me continually for whatever God wanted to do in and through me. Discarding purity as a necessity would mean that every time God had had an assignment for me He would first have to quote clean me up yet again Purify me and take me through the process of healing before I could be of any use The alternate would be me attempting to give to others what I did not have myself The grace and understanding to live in holiness and purity Looking back to my romantic life before Christ I believe my struggle with healthy romantic relationships hinted at what was missing in my relationship with my father. I did not have my father physically present for the first 10 years of my life. We lived on different continents, after all. I knew he loved me. We spoke on the phone regularly. I received gifts from him. I studied his pictures and anticipated the day we would meet. When we did meet, I could not bring myself to believe that the man who spoke with me on the phone for so many years could actually truly love me as a living, breathing child under his roof. It took me almost three years to hug my father because I was that afraid of being rejected. Perhaps what I was seeking in my many relationships was a romance where affection and openness were the norm. And rather than investing in opening my life up to my father, and risking his rejection, I reserved the most transparent aspect of myself for men I hoped would step up and prove themselves worthy of my attention. The attention I was already lavishing so freely. The man I know as my father today, the big, boisterous, hilarious man who would do anything for his family, was something of an enigma to me when we first met. He seemed so reserved and unflinching like a mountain. Perhaps the distance between us caused me to choose men who were always a little indifferent, a bit nonchalant towards me. I found their coolness intriguing, a challenge I wanted to undertake. Perhaps I will be the woman to bring out the fire in those otherwise stoic men. Perhaps I was subconsciously dating the father I had missed for the first 10 years of my life. Who knows? On top of all of that, I had a genuine fear of being unloved and abandoned by my family. It's possible that being separated from my father since birth and having my mother move away when I was only five years old, gave me an unnamed fear of being left behind yet again by my family unit. Losing their love would have meant losing my only village. I was already trying to do life on a new continent. Trying to navigate life as a child and then an adolescent without my parents' unwavering love and support would have been absolutely devastating. If I did not fit in my own family, where would I hope to fit? It was that fear that likely kept me from sharing the incidents of my abuse with them. The first one and the ones that followed. If wholeness meant acceptance, I could not afford to let my family see my broken pieces, lest they reject me too. Another challenge that plagued my dating life prior to Christ was my unending cycle of falling in love and out again. I had relationships that burned white hot for months, even a couple of years, but they always burned out. It turns out that I was pursuing infatuation, not love. There was a certain magic in the first moment of connecting with a new person and realizing that we have the potential to change each other's lives for good. Butterflies in the belly are a real thing, but the butterflies were not there to be the foundation of the entire relationship, which is what I did. They were a push to find out who this person was and determine if we were compatible. Once the butterflies died down, What should be left standing was a solid friendship built on months of honest conversation and meaningful investment into one another's growth. I did not do that. What I did was chase the butterflies. I would date someone because they gave me butterflies. Once the fluttering in my belly was gone, so was the thrill and I would move on. I have heard that infatuation lasts an average of 18 months. Based on the life cycle of relationships, The infatuation phase should eventually give way to the attachment phase. The attachment phase of relationship is where the passion is no longer burning white hot, but there is a sort of quiet contentment of knowing you have a partner who is willing to stand by your side through good times and bad. psychologytoday.com I was missing out on the attachment phase of relationships because I kept chasing the infatuation. My dating habits were grooming me for divorce and I did not even know it. If all I knew how to do was walk away after the thrill disappeared, the risk was high that even as a married woman, I would do what I have always done, leave. After I had been walking with the Lord for about a year, I had experienced a phenomenal amount of healing from the bondage that came with relationships done wrong. I honestly thought I was whole already until I started noticing a pattern in my thoughts. Whenever I was at a Christian gathering for young believers like myself, I would notice the married couples. They were praying together, serving together. Some led worship, some preached, and everyone had their place, and each duo was always side by side. Inexplicably, my thoughts would wander, and the same thought would always interject the stream of thoughts would go something like this I can never have that because I've done too much no godly man would want a woman like me even if I do get married it can never look like these relationships these couples waited till they were married most of them have been walking faithfully with God since they were in elementary school their past looks nothing like mine God would never use me to the same extent that he uses them I've just done way too much. Repeatedly, the same script will run. I was not even sad about it. I thought it was only fair for God to reserve the best for those of His children who have been the most faithful. I certainly did not qualify, since I had spent so many of my years in the church while still living in rebellion. The thoughts would calm, and I would allow them. For a while, I genuinely believe that it was God speaking to me. I will never forget February 11th, 2011, while I was attending the National Conference for Bethel Campus Fellowship in Ridgecrest, North Carolina. The Lord met me specifically about these thoughts. In the middle of the conference, the Holy Spirit spoke to me clear as day. That is not my voice, he told me. I will never redeem you from your past, And then punish you with it for the rest of your life. The thoughts you said were from me are the lies of the enemy. You are no less deserving of a godly marriage because of your past. Your marriage will be everything I want it to be. And more. And it will bless you beyond anything you can create for yourself. And just like that, my fears were laid to rest. The voice of the enemy was silenced forever on that matter. Funny enough, my husband asked me on our first date just a month and a half later, March 29, 2011. True to his word, my marriage has blessed me beyond what words alone can say. I started dating when I was 16 years old and officially took myself off the market shortly after my 26th birthday at the instruction of the Holy Spirit. In those 10 years, I developed my own outlook on romance guided only by my experience, fantasy, and the ideologies I found in movies and books. I thought the right relationship would fall into my lap out of nowhere, and we would live happily ever after. To me, everywhere held the possibility of romance. The love of my life could be hiding in my high school, at church, in my college classes, or even in the courtrooms where I worked. It never occurred to me that the man I would marry had been right under my nose all along. This concludes part one of chapter two, Love, Lust, and the Messy Stuff. Join us next time for part two of chapter two. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.